So some people say that they want to, you know, study the Bible, learn Bible doctrines, learn things about the Bible. And some of those same people will also say, but I also want to learn, you know, practical life skills. You know, I want biblical stuff, but I also want practical stuff, as if there's a conflict between the two. We might use phrases from time to time. We might say things like, that was a good sermon, but how about something practical? Or we might say something like, thanks for teaching on the second coming of Christ. That's fascinating, but how about something which concerns me today? But the reality is that if it is practical, it is biblical. And if it is biblical, then it is practical. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. In the Old Testament, there's a lot of different prophets. And one of my favorite prophets was the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, <laughs> nobody listened to him. Uh, you know, he just kept on doing his thing. He didn't even get like one convert. You know, nobody listened to his message because he had a hard message to deliver to Israel. By the time he came around, after the time of David, the northern 10 tribes had already been dispersed by the Syrian invaders. And Jeremiah came onto the scene to announce to the tribes that remained, Judah and Benjamin as well, who had uh, Jerusalem inside of them. He announced to them, the Babylonians are coming. And he said, the Babylonians are coming as an instrument of God's chastening hand upon us for the way that we have abused the law of God for you know almost 500 years now. So needless to say, this was not a popular prophecy. There were other prophets who arose. God had a little commentary about these other prophets who arose. He said, they heal the wound of my people lightly. They say peace and safety when there is no peace, there is no safety. He said, destruction is coming. The Babylonians or Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, or another reference to the Babylonians or way to think of them would be the Chaldeans, they're coming. And Jeremiah kept saying it. Eventually, the Babylonians came, took them away into captivity, but left a remnant in Jerusalem. Jeremiah was part of that remnant. He kept preaching. Every time he preached, every time he wrote, every time he spoke, they did something. They'd throw him in prison. They'd take his written words, and they'd burn them up in a fire. They'd throw him down into a great pit. I mean, they just wouldn't heed his words. One of the things he said to them was, look, you just should submit to the Babylonians. Go into Babylon, buy homes, you know, live there. You're going to be there a while. Just accept it. Don't resist the chastening hand of the Lord. Anyways, one day God spoke to him and God said to Jeremiah, hey, your cousin's coming over and he's going to offer you a field in Anathoth for purchase and I want you to buy it. Then the cousin knocked on the door, and I, I love the, what it says in the Bible. It says, Jeremiah then knew it was the word of the Lord. <laughs> you know, he's like, he hears it, but then when the door knocks and it's his cousin, he's like, okay, this is, the, this is the Lord. The cousin says, hey, I want you to buy the field in Anathoth. So he buys the field, and then he prays. And he says to God, he says, God, you know, you've told me to give these prophecies. You've told me to tell everybody that the Babylonians are coming, that this discipline from you is coming. You've told me to declare this to everybody. You've told me to prophesy specifically that all these fields would be desolate. And yet now you've told me to buy a field. This seems to be nonsensical. This is not practical. 
But that's when the Lord showed him, Jeremiah, they're going to be in captivity for a set period of time, but I'm going to bring these people back. And later, it would be a a period of 70 years was the prediction that Jeremiah gave. So Jeremiah, he was not going to ever really actually enjoy that field. He was going to be dead and gone by the time the people of Israel came back into Jerusalem and those fields were able to be used. But he purchased that field, put the deeds of that field in the field itself, buried in a clay pot, as if to say, I believe God and I am building my future life and the life of my future family and people that are connected to me in the future. I I am so confident of what God is going to do tomorrow that it's going to inform the way that I live today. And to me, that's what the doctrine of the second coming of Christ should do to us. It's not an impractical doctrine that makes us behave in impractical ways. No, it has great relevance for our here and now. I I read a lot of Christian books. I read a lot of uh, articles and, and a lot of books written by Christians. And a lot of times what I discover is that it's basically repackaged advice that the God of this age is already giving people. Void of a concept of a future kingdom that we're to be a part of. So part of what I want to be able to say tonight to everybody is if you have made decisions that have rearranged your life in major ways or in minor ways as a result of your belief in the return of Christ, his coming kingdom, what I want you to feel is that you have made the most practical decision that you can. I I want you to believe that you have not wasted life, but that you have spent it well. I think that Jeremiah was the most practical man of his entire generation, but he was totally alone. Okay, so I could kind of end the sermon right now, but we have like 50 verses to read, so let's let's go through this uh, together. Starting out in verse 1, I reminded you that David was mourning when he heard that Absalom was dead. So let's read about that today. It says in verse 1, And it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people, these are David's soldiers, the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. So they came back to Mahanaim and they acted like they lost because they heard that David was weeping. The king covered his face, verse 4, and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab, verse 5, came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. 
Then the king, verse 8, arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Now, what about Israel? What about the ten tribes of Israel? What are excuse me, what about all of Israel, including uh, Judah, who had rebelled and followed Absalom? It says, now Israel had fled every man to his home. So here, what we have is David's general, Joab, confronting David for his spirit, confronting David for his attitude. Have you ever had to have this in your life? You know, somebody that has to kind of confront you for an attitude that you have that just isn't right. It's not going to lead to fruit in your life. And so that's what Joab does. Now, by this point, Joab, Joab has totally uh, identified himself through his actions as a man who has his own agenda, and he really doesn't care about David's agenda. He cares about it as long as he agrees with it. Like earlier in David's reign, when Abner, who was Saul's general, came to David and said, hey, I want to have peace with you. David said, cool, let's make peace. Abner said, I'm going to bring all the tribes over. We're going to reunite Israel. And they made a deal together. They were going to have peace together. Remember what happened? Abner left. Joab met with Abner. He said, hey, come over here. Let's have a meeting. And he stabbed him in the stomach and he killed him. That's a, that's a general of David saying, I'm not going to listen to you and the peace treaty that you've established. I'm going to do my own thing. Then when Absalom killed David's firstborn son, Amnon, and ran into Geshur to hide with his grandfather, Joab was the one who became Absalom's advocate. It was as if he was saying, I believe that Absalom should be the next king in Israel. Okay, so he kind of had his own thing. And then here in this episode, David gives a very direct instructions, don't kill Absalom and Joab kills Absalom. So this guy is off the rails. He's doing his own thing. He's kind of using David for his own purposes. So, you know, that's already, you know, seen by this point. But what you have here is the case of a bad person giving good advice. You know what's the old saying? Even a broken watch is right twice a day. (laughs) You know, that's what's happening here with Joab. He's got the right perspective, even though... He's an evil person. Now, of course, David needed an attitude adjustment. And I'll just talk about this portion of it real quickly in comparison to the second coming of Christ because Jesus needs no attitude adjustment. Jesus loves his servants. He's always loved his servants. On the night that he was betrayed, he ate the last supper, gave the bread to Judas. Judas went out to betray him. And then Jesus went on a walk with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane and opened his mouth and his heart to teach them. And the first thing that he said to him in John 14, 1 through 3, was this. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have, not, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. It's like Jesus was announcing to his disciples, look, as much as you might look forward to my return, I am also looking forward to my return. I'm looking forward to being together with you. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. I'll be thinking about you, waiting for that moment where you and I can be rejoined together. I love watching those videos where a soldier comes home from deployment and they surprise 
you know, a loved one, surprise a child or surprise a spouse or something like that. You know, it's always so fun. The, the, the man or the woman, they walk in and there's the child, you know, just with delight on their face and excitement and all of that. But it's also really cool to look at the face of the soldier who's returned. See how they feel. You see, when Christ comes, he is looking forward to that reunification with you, with me with his people. So verse 8, let's go on in the story. It says, then the king arose and took his seat at the gate. Again, not in Jerusalem, but in Mahanaim. And the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? What this, what this means is that there was a national conversation that was taking place where people, they were debating, what do we do now? You know, David, he's a good guy. That's kind of what they confessed, this certain camp. They say he was a good guy. He killed Goliath. He defeated the Philistines. He expanded our territory. But then we picked Absalom. And then they're like, and apparently we chose poorly because Absalom's dead, so we should bring the king back. And that attitude began to gain popularity. If this had happened in modern days, there'd be like a hashtag for it, like, you know, hashtag bring back the king or something like that, you know. And it wouldn't be about LeBron James. It would be about David. So, you know, that was the mood that was beginning to spread. And King David, verse 11, sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. He said, say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring back the king to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? So that national mood and sentiment had come to David and Mahanaim. People were saying, hey, we want you to come back. But he hadn't heard from his own tribe yet, the tribe of Judah, the ones that had Jerusalem inside of them. So, you know, he sends through his surrogates through the priests he says you know appeal to them ask them why they haven't brought me back they're my this is my tribe verse 2 verse 12 you are my brothers you are my bone and my flesh why then should you be the last to bring back the king then he does this other move in verse 13 to try to get them to restore him in verse 13 it says and say to amasa are you not my bone and my flesh God do so to me, and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab. So David strikes a deal. He's like, I want to come back. Amasa was also related to David, just like Joab was, but Amasa was Absalom's general. So now he reaches out to Absalom's general, and he says, look, let's make a deal. Bring me back. I'll let you be the general of my army. Let's, let's be at peace. I'll let you be the general uh, of my army. Now when, now when he did this, uh, Joab was eventually going to hear about it. You can imagine what Joab's going to do. We're going to read about it next week. A a Joab is going to kill Amasa. So he got to be the general for like a day <laughs> because Joab just can't handle anyone else having that position. He, like I said, he was just an out-of-control man. And he swayed, verse 14, the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, the Jordan River, 
which they'd have to cross to get back into Israel from east to west. And Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. All right, now, in this movement, David reaches out to to Israel and to Judah, and, and he basically says to them, look, you have something to do with bringing me back to Jerusalem. And I'm asking that you would do your part to bring me back. Now, with the return of Christ, the Bible says that no man knows the day or the hour. Uh, We're not pushing God around. We can't tell him when to come. Nor can we create an ideal world where everybody on earth has been evangelized and you know, everybody's a believer, and now Jesus can return. There was once a day where that was a popular thought, and then World War I and World War II happened, and then everybody lost their heart for that kind of doctrine. But the reality is that there are certain things that believers can do to hasten the day of the Lord. Can't make it happen, but listen to this. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, he says, we must be waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Or as it says in the NIV translation, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Fascinating. The, the word there for hasten or to speed is the Greek word spudo, which we transliterate into English, as it kind of reads like speedo, if you want to get that in your mind. It means to make haste or to speed or to do something quickly. So just consider that for a moment. What what are we as the Lord's people to do to wait for and hasten or speed the day of the Lord? I'll give you three suggestions. Number one, we should desire the day of the Lord. We should desire the day of the Lord. There's evidence in Scripture that the more you let the Holy Spirit have control of your life, the more you will crave the coming of Christ. You see, in in Romans chapter 8, Paul talked about creation, how creation yearns for its redemption, desires it, yearns earnestly to be redeemed. Just hates the brokenness, the death, all of that. Creation yearns for restoration. But it goes on to say there in Romans chapter 8 that not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So the Spirit is in believers, in you if you're a believer tonight, And what the Spirit wants to do is cultivate within you an environment of yearning for the redemption of your body. So really, in a sense, you could say that the more that I desire that, the more the Spirit has gotten control of my life. The more I'm looking forward to seeing the Lord in that unfiltered way, the more the Spirit has control of my mind, the more the Spirit has control of my heart. Hebrews 9, 28 is another cross-reference about this. It says there that Christ will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are 
eagerly waiting for him. So there's something there perhaps about the attitude of our hearts, a desire. Number two, here's another thing we can do. We can pray. We can pray for the coming of the Lord. Now, I mean that in a couple of different ways. You know, one way would just be in the way that Jesus taught us to pray. You guys remember that? In Matthew chapter 6, he told the disciples, and by extension us, he said, you should pray this. You should, say, you should pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, when I pray that, there's a lot of different things I'm praying for there. You know, when I, when I pray for Sundays, for instance, and I do, I pray for our gatherings on Sunday, I pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And one of the things I'm asking for is that within each individual heart that comes, that each one of us, God's kingdom would have a bigger place within our heart when the day is over with. You know, that it would expand within us. I'm also praying when I pray that prayer for my own personal allegiance to the Lord. Lord, your kingdom come. I want, I want your desires, your purpose, your will. You know, in heaven, you say what you want and the angels do it. It's just all centered around you. And I want my life to be like that, just centered around you, obedient to you very quickly. So Lord, would you bring that to bear? It's also a prayer for the evangelization of the nations for missionaries and church planting, you know, throughout the world. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're praying for the expansion of God's kingdom, of God's people. But we'll be able to pray that prayer all the way until the day we meet the Lord face to face. But when the new heavens and the new earth come, and we're there gathered around the throne of God, and we're living with the Lord. Nobody is going to pray that prayer. You know, if somebody says, you know, oh, God, you're just so wonderful, you're so beautiful, your kingdom come, your will be done. You know, I think maybe there'll be like a big, you know, I don't know if there's like a whistle in heaven, but just like a time out. It's happened. <laughs> you know, what kind of be the thing? It's happened. His kingdom has come. His will is done. So we can pray, I think, you know, for that kingdom to expand. But also, there's a sense in which I think we can pray for the return of the Lord. The Bible ends with Revelation chapter 22 with John saying, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. That's Jesus speaking. And then John writes, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In the Greek, that's where we get the word maranatha. If you've ever heard a Christian say that to you, Maranatha. And maybe you've had a Christian say that to you and you're like, I have no idea what, what they just, you know, God bless you, you know, or something. But what that means is, come, Lord, come, Lord. And so there's a, there's a sense in Scripture where we can pray for the return of the Lord. But number three, and, and this is the biggest one, we can work. We can work for the kingdom. For one, Jesus looked at his disciples, and by extension us, and said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We got the water out there tonight. If any of you would like to be water baptized after the service, Pastor Matt's going to be back there. Just go tell him, man, I'm ready. I'm ready to be baptized. I'm ready to follow Christ. I'm ready to give my life 
to him. I've never done this before. I'm ready to be baptized. But we're to do that. We're to make disciples. We're to teach them to observe everything that Jesus has taught us. So we labor. And there's a sense in Ephesians 4 that the Lord is waiting for something to happen with his people. Because in Ephesians 4, it says that he, he went to heaven and then he gave gifts to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Listen to this, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There's a sense there in which it's, I'm wanting this to take place until... My people have full maturity. My people are working. They're doing what the Lord has made them to do. And so in every generation of the church, we should make that our personal aim and ambition to fully come into what the Lord has designed us for here on earth. So we can work. All right, I better move on in the story so that we can get all of this in tonight. So let's go back to 2 Samuel and consider David's return. Uh, it says in verse 16, and Shimei, the son of Gera. Remember Shimei? He was the guy that when David left Jerusalem, fleeing, Shimei came out throwing rocks at David and cursing David. So Shimei now, he, he realizes, man, I picked the wrong winner. I picked the wrong guy. So he's going to try to make amends with David. It says, and Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. He was a Benjamite. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day of my lord the day my lord the king left Jerusalem, do not let the king take it to heart. For your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, that's a reference to Israel, to come down to meet my lord the king. So Shimei comes down, he's like, please don't hold that against me, you know, what I did to you before. Abishai, the son of Zariah, said, shall not Shimei be put to death for this? Because he cursed the Lord's anointed. We've, have, we've had some fun with Abishai because I keep pointing out every time he talks, he's asking David to kill somebody. And here we have another time. He wanted to kill Shimei on the way out of Jerusalem, and now he wants to kill Shimei on the way into Jerusalem. He's like, surely, David, you've changed your mind. This guy cursed you. He should die. But David said, verse 22, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? that you should this day be as an adversary to me. Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over all Israel? And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Shimei did. During David's life, he was allowed to live. Interestingly, though, when David died, he was on his deathbed, and he gave Solomon, his son, some specific directions. There were certain people that David was strong enough to be able to handle. Joab, he could handle. You know, 
uh, Shimei he could handle. But when David died, he went to Solomon and said, look, your kingdom's not going to survive, basically, unless you take out and bring capital punishment upon Joab for all of his crimes that he's committed. And then Shimei, you need to really watch that guy. And so they made a deal with Shimei. You can live as long as you stay in a certain geographical area. The second you leave, we're going to know that you're going to try to get a following to lead another one of your rebellions. So you got to stay in this area. It was kind of like the first house arrest. And, uh, and eventually he actually left and, and Solomon followed through on his word. But here at this point, at least, David extends him some time, extends him some mercy. So here's David coming back. And what do you have? You have this key figure coming there to David with all of this mourning, with this weeping, with this sorrow, with this regret in his heart. You know, the Bible teaches that when Jesus returns, it will be a sorrowful event for some. There's a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 12 that says when Jesus returns, they will look on him whom they've pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Jesus reiterated that same idea in the New Testament when he talked about his coming. In Matthew 24, verse 30, he said, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And then finally, again, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, John writes, Behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Now the question is, why will it be a point of weeping or mourning for some. Well, it will partly be a time of weeping and mourning because with the coming of Christ will also come in the direct judgment of God like the world has not seen since the plagues were brought upon Egypt or the flood was brought upon the Noahic generation. It'll be a very direct hand of God in judging the earth. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3, amongst other places, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. That's part of the reason for the mourning, the weeping, the sorrow. It's going to be a difficult time on earth as God judges the world in a very direct rather than indirect kind of way. But there will also, I think, be mourning of regret for the rejection of the Lord, the rejection of the gospel. It says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, that those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, Jesus comes for them in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. They will suffer the punishment, Paul writes, of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's really always the idea whenever the Bible speaks of eternal judgment. It's whatever God is, it's opposite that. So God is light, it's a place of darkness. God is present, it's a place away from God. It's outside of the presence of the Lord. Because the idea is, to be in the presence of the Lord, you have to have wanted that. 
have to have desire to want to be in the presence of the Lord. So this is a very sober you know, concept. It speaks to us that now is the time to preach, to reach out, to evangelize, uh, because we want it obviously to be uh, a sorrowful event for as few people as possible. And so does the Lord. His will is that all would be saved. Now the story goes on in verse 24. And it says, And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. I think some of the translations even draw out some of the Hebrew words and interpret or translate this as he did not groom his toenails or his fingernails the whole time that David was gone. So he comes out as he's just looking all scraggly. He had like a no-shave November, the whole thing. He comes out and his physical appearance demonstrates that he had been in mourning since David was gone. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? Now, just to refresh your mind, Mephibosheth was one of Saul's relatives, son of Jonathan. And David had brought Mephibosheth into his family. But when David fled from Jerusalem, Mephibosheth's servant, Ziba, came out to him and said, hey man, Mephibosheth thinks that the kingdom is going to go back to Saul's household now, and he's stoked about it. He's never wanted to have anything to do with you. And David told Ziba, he said, okay, you can have all of Mephibosheth's land then. It's like a kingly proclamation. Fine, that guy doesn't want me as king. I'll make a kingly decision. You can have all this stuff. So now David comes back and he goes to Mephibosheth. He says, hey, where were you? Why didn't you come with me when I was banished? Mephibosheth answered, verse 26, my lord, O king, my servant deceived me for your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He had been crippled when he was a little boy, running actually for his life, thinking they thought that David was going to kill all of Saul's family. Uh, He has slandered, verse 27, your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you, for all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. So previously he gave it all to Ziba, but now he says, Okay, I'm going to go back on that. I'm going to divide it. It kind of tells us that David was confused. He didn't know who to believe. Do I believe Ziba? Do I believe Mephibosheth? I don't know who to believe. Now, think about the life of Solomon after David. There was a time Solomon had all this wisdom, and one of the marks of his wisdom was was this famous story, or maybe an infamous story, where there were these two prostitutes who had babies, and they were sharing an apartment. And in the night, one of these women smothered her child in the night on accident. The child died. She woke up, realized that the child was dead. She took the dead baby, and she placed it next to the other woman and took that woman's live baby and placed it next to herself. And when the other woman woke up in the morning, she, re- she recognized the child. This is not my child, like any mother would. She recognized this child. And the case got brought to Solomon. Solomon realized somebody here is crazy. I mean, somebody here is crazy. Like somebody would do something like that. Somebody here has lost their minds. So he said, bring me a sword. They brought him a sword. He said, let's divide the baby. 
We'll divide the baby in half so that both of you can have half a baby. He just knew that it would draw out the crazy. So the crazy lady, she says, good plan. And then, of course, the real mother said, that's fine. She can have the child. And that's how Solomon discerned, okay, you're the real mother. That's how a real mother would behave, a real mother would act. David's kind of doing a similar type of thing. Divide the land. Let's see how Mephibosheth responds. It says in verse 30, And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. He's like, I don't even want the land. I don't even need the land. I'm just happy that you're here. I've already tried to say this before in previous study, but I, I believe Mephibosheth. I believe that he was in the right and that his servant really did deceive him. But here what we see from Mephibosheth, I think, is just this beautiful picture. David returns, and Mephibosheth, he doesn't care about the land. He doesn't care about his produce. He doesn't care about all that kind of stuff. What he cares about is that he gets David again. He gets to be with David. You see, Jesus' return will be wonderful for, for some because they love Jesus. I mean, that's really what heaven is all about. And sometimes we get all fixated. What's it going to be like? You know, stuff like that. I really want to fly. Can I fly? You know, kind of thing. And hey, don't get me wrong. I'm curious about that too. I hope that I can. But the thing that a real believer is looking forward to is the Lord. Is knowing the Lord. Being in total, complete, naked, known relationship with God. It says in 1 Thessalonians 16 and 17 that when the trumpet blasts and the Lord descends and calls us home, we will meet the Lord in the air and we will always be with the Lord. John says in 1 John 3 verse 2, we're God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because, listen to this, we will see him as he is. Just an unfiltered, vision of God. Remember when Moses said to God, God, show me, show me your glory. He said, you can't handle my glory. You can't see my glory. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll pass by. Then you can see the afterglow of my glory. But we'll be able to see the full glory of the Lord without limitation. Just beautiful. All right, let's close the the chapter by reading uh, the rest of the story. It says, We've got one more character. It says, Now Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. When David was on his way out of Jerusalem, fleeing for his life, Barzillai and a few other guys, they kind of became the financiers of David's army. They brought all kinds of supplies to Mahanaim and, and supported him, helped him out. So when David's going back, this guy comes out to meet David. And the king said to Barzillai, come over with me and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant And what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my Lord the King? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with my King. 
Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. So Barzillai here, David says, hey, come with me. I'll reward you. You can live with me in Jerusalem. And Barzillai just says, man, I'm 80 years old. I'm gonna, I want to be buried in my hometown. That's where I'm living right now. I've got things set up there. I'm all dialed. He, and he kind of says, like, I'm too old to taste anything. You're going to have singers come out and sing songs in the royal court, and you're going to be, like, elbowing me, saying, like, wasn't that good? And I'm going to look at you like, huh? And he just says, I, you know, I'm not going to be able to enjoy this. I'm enjoying my life as it is. Don't make me move, you know? I mean, I, I, I can only imagine being 80 years old and just saying, like, I'm not about to try to pack everything up. I just, I got a good life where I am. Just let me stay there. But, verse 37, here's your servant, Chimham. Let him go over with my lord, the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire for me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over, and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. We have this little note at the end of the chapter. It says in verse 41, Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? You know, why did they get Why did the people of Judah get to be the ones who bring you across the river? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Verse 42, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? We've never, have, have we eaten at all at the king's expense or has he given us any gift? You know, we haven't gotten any special privilege just because the king came from our tribe. And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have 10 shares, there's 10 tribes. We have 10 shares of the king. And in David also, we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. And that kind of sets up the mood for what's going to happen in our next chapter next week. So I know it's hard to imagine God's people fighting over something ridiculous, but that's what they were doing. They're arguing about, hey, we wanted to be the ones to bring him across the river. But in closing... Let me just point out to you that when David returned, Barzillai and most people think his son, Chimham, were greatly rewarded for what they had done, the support that they had given to David prior to his return. And I think that this speaks to us or reminds us that Jesus' return will be a rewarding experience for those who have served him in this life. To hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. To receive the crown of life. To be clothed with white garments. To walk with him. To enjoy him. To be established by him. There is a unique reward for those who have devoted themselves to serving him here in this world and in this life. So again, I go back to the Jeremiah thing. Anything that you have done to reorder, to reschedule, 
to point your finances or your time or your energy in the direction of God's kingdom, whether small or great, it is the most prudent and practical thing that you could possibly do. And when Christ returns, you'll be so thankful that you did. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about Calvary Monterey and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.